Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview episode for you. So today's guest is uh, Professor Paul Larson. Professor Paul Larson is someone who I have been curious about getting on the show for quite some time now. Actually, it was probably over two years ago at this point, I had Dr. Dan Plews come on the show. And Dr. Dan Plews is equally interesting to me for the similar reasons. Uh, He has a performance lab in New Zealand and has just been really interesting to follow when it comes to both endurance performance performance testing, as well as applications for low carbohydrate diet. And, you know, Dan has done everything from setting the age group world record at the Kona Ironman world championships to coaching some high caliber athletes. And before he started doing all that on his own, he and Paul Larson did a lot together, a lot of research and a lot of uh, content around uh, endurance training, fueling and things like that. So I wanted to get him on the show to share kind of what his insights are with the athletes he's working with, what he's doing from a training standpoint, fueling standpoint, things like that. And just try to wrap my head around like what, what he's up to and then see if there's any nuggets in there that, that I personally can use with, uh, you know, my own low carbohydrate approach. So hopefully those of you who are listening, who are both interested in endurance, as well as some of the nutritional aspect to it, will enjoy this one. Just some of the background on Professor Paul Larson. He's an author, endurance coach, high-performance consultant, technologist, and entrepreneur. He's the co-founder and CEO of Hit Science, co-founder and head of product for Athletica, co-host of the Training Science Podcast, former lead physiology for New Zealand Olympic athletes and adjunct professor of exercise physiology at Auckland University of Technology, world-renowned specialist in high-intensity interval training, low-carb diets, ketosis, heart rate variability, thermal physiology, health, and artificial intelligence. He's published over 150 scientific manuscripts with work cited more than 15,000 times. He's competed in 17 Ironman triathlons while relishing the art of coaching both professional and age group athletes intensely determined to master the craft of cooking the perfect steak. There you have it, folks. I think he's going to fit right in with a lot of us here. And I'm excited to kind of bring you the information he has to share. Also, some guests coming up. I mentioned Dr. Dan Plews. He's actually coming on the show. We're going to record in late January. Uh, Already recorded on the show Patreon page and just waiting to come out is an interview that I had with Brad Kearns. Brad's a returning guest. He's a bit of a tinker, former professional triathlete. He does all sorts of stuff though. Now he's been into speed golfing, high jump, sprinting, all sorts of stuff. So it's always fun to check in with Brad every once in a while and find out what he's playing around with from fitness as well as nutrition. Uh, Also recorded and coming up is an interview I doing with Steve Magnus. Steve Magnus is well-known in the endurance community for a wide variety of reasons, not only for just his insight into coaching methodology and philosophy and things like that, which I would consider him a a leading person at this point uh, with that sort of stuff. But he also um, has a little bit of fame in the sense that he worked alongside Alberto Salazar for a while and ultimately was one of the people that sort of 
showed a spotlight on some of the uh, some of the problems that was going on with that program and eventually stepped down because of them. So he's got a, a rich history in endurance sport, a very interesting storyline. He was one of the top milers, not only in the country, but in the world in high school and sort of leaned into it maybe a little too aggressively and found himself uh, just unable to perform to the degree where he had to step away from the sport from a competitive standpoint. And uh, if you're interested in some background on Steve, actually, he was on the Rich Roll podcast recently, and I thought Rich did a fantastic job of like outlining his background, how he got to uh, where he is today, some of the hurdles he's had to get over from his own uh, training mistakes earlier in life and what he does differently now working with athletes to make sure that those type of things don't happen to them. His background with the Nike Oregon Project, uh, you know, the stuff he's up to today, he's written a few books, one more recently called Do Hard Things, which I think is just a really great person to have write a book like that because I mean, doing hard things is sort of this semi-nebulous type of uh, term where it's like hard relative to what where's that line of crossing over where it's no longer just doing hard things, but doing hard things for the sake of hard things and kind of finding that diminishing returns that you can often get by overextending yourself, which Steve has a very personal story about, as I mentioned. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about a lot of stuff with him as well as uh, he, he wrote a, an article for the Atlantic. This is a little bit ago, maybe a year or so ago at this point where he looked at just uh, like gender categorization within sport. And I want to get his take on that as well, just to find out just what he thinks maybe the future of sport categorization goes, where we're maybe uh, right or wrong currently in terms of how we're looking at things and in what what are some possible solutions to kind of go with that. So um, that one will be a fun one to, to record and get up sooner rather than later. Um, another guest coming up that I think folks will be really excited, Courtney DeWalter. Courtney is in my opinion, the best female ultramarathoner that the sport has seen to date. And I'll get some pushback with that because her career is nowhere near being over. And there are some great women ultra runners. If you look at the history books of ultra running and things like that, um, perhaps I'm biased because I compete in the same era as Courtney. But when I just look at what she's done to the degree of what she's done it, with the level of competition we have today and just the spotlight that is on the sport now, uh, together with just her general demeanor and personality, I think makes her someone that uh, we should all be excited to put a big spotlight on as a representation of the sport of ultra running. So I'm going to have a fun time, I think, sitting down with Courtney talking a little about training, about racing, her mentality, but also I want to dive into Courtney before the ultra runner too, because Courtney and I share a similar background and that we were both teachers before we became ultra marathon runners and eventually became professional within that kind of capacity. So I'd like to hear kind of like what drove her to take on that career originally and what it was like when she eventually decided to step away to focus more on her training and racing. Also coming up, I've got some solo episodes coming up that are going to be based on the topics that I get sent from listeners. So uh, this year I'm probably going to do fewer topics per episode. So it should allow me to both dive a little bit deeper into each one of them perhaps, and then also get some maybe quicker type episodes. I know there's a range of interest out there from people who want really long episodes, like well over an hour, folks who want some that are a little more quick hitters, like 20, 30 minutes and things like that. So I'm going to try to have a little bit of balance this year with some ranges and those type of things. So if you just got 
you know, a 20, 30 minute commute and you want to check in on a couple of topics that I'm weighing in on, you can do that. Or if you want to sit down and check out a full on interview, you'll have those options too. So the next topic episode that I have is uh, on working out while sick or coming back into working out after you've been sick. So I dive into specifically upper respiratory conditions like, um, you know, colds, flus, that sort of stuff viruses, you know, some, like, what do you do once you have it is kind of part of the topic as well as just kind of highlighting, you know, everything there is around that in terms of like the protocols into, uh, when to, and not to try to train through it, when to start back up, how to come back and that sort of stuff. And the other one is cool downs. I actually had a question that was interesting to me because they were asking it about long cool downs and meaning like doing a workout and then running like a relatively long cool down. Is that problematic given that like, you know, your mechanics might be a little different due to weakness in your legs and things like that, or running fatigue, that sort of stuff. So, uh, I ended up breaking that one into a much larger topic and just looked at the research behind cool downs in general, because I do think a lot of people sometimes often see cool downs for something other than what they actually probably are good for. So we look at all of that. What are they good for? What are they not good for? Should you do them <laughs> uh, and kind of dive into like what we know about that at the moment. So uh, as you, as with a lot of these topics, I think there's still reason to continue to research these things. And there's a lot we probably don't know. And, you know, taking that with, uh, you know, having, I guess I should say having that in the back of your mind when you listen to that sort of stuff is always uh, something to consider. All right. Um, finally, uh, just a couple announcements before we get rolling here. If you want to check out some of those episodes I just mentioned, the ones that are already recorded and the ones that are about to be recorded, I do upload them onto the show Patreon page ad-free as soon as I get done recording and have a chance to minimally edit them in a way that they can kind of get up there on that Patreon page. So if you want access to that ad-free early release audio and support the show at the same time, you can do that through the show Patreon page. One way to find the show Patreon page is just head to my website at zachbetter.com. The specific landing page is zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. You can either add that HPO at the end or just go to this website and there's a tab at the top that can click over to it too. That is the landing page for everything that you'll ever need about the show. It's got links to each episode individually, the details with it, links to the video, the audio, links to popular platforms, as well as links to that Patreon page if you want to check that out. If you want to support the show, but not through Patreon, you can also do some, there's some support options on that page as well, if you're interested in that. Um, but above and beyond any sort of support that way, uh, what really goes a long way is if you share these episodes when you enjoy them with your friends, family, and listeners on social media or followers on social media so that they too can experience the podcast. I can grow it and then we can continue to bring more and more episodes. Before we roll into this interview with Dr. Paul Larson, just a quick announcement from one of our top show sponsors, LMNT. LMNT just signed up for a full year of support for the HPO podcast. So checking out their products. If you're interested in an electrolyte supplement through the links here goes a long way to thank them for their support and allowing me to ultimately record more episodes this year. So for those of you who are new, uh, what is Element T? Element T is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. This means lots of salt with no sugar. Element T is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited to folks following 
keto, low carb, or paleo diet. LMNT contains science-backed electrolyte ratios of 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, none of the junk, no sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. So one of the reasons why I wanted to partner with LMNT is because it is a product I use at this point, basically on a daily basis. So the way I like to do it is they have a range of different flavors from ones that are more like warm beverage based to some kind of more savory, savory type options to the fruity flavors. So the way I do it is when I wake up in the morning, I usually have a cup of coffee before I head out for a run. So uh, before I drink that cup of coffee, I'll usually put about half a pack of the that element in there, one of their chocolate flavors. During the seasonal times of year, the winter seasons, they actually have these really fun flavors too that I can't get enough of. Uh, one of them is like a mint chocolate and then they have a caramel chocolate. To be honest, those are probably my favorite at this point. You put that in a cup of coffee with some creamer and half a packet of that and it is just a great way for me to start the morning. Um, when I need a little bit of electrolyte out there, like if I'm out on a warm weather run or a longer run where I want to make sure that the fluids I'm taking in are supported with some electrolytes, I'll usually turn to a fruit flavor for that. My go-to at the moment is watermelon. That's a really fun flavor. So if you want to check it out, they're actually running a promotion for human performance outliers listeners, which is a free sample pack with any purchase. That free sample pack is going to give you the option to try out all the different flavors that I mentioned in their core lineup. And then if you decide, hey, I really like this one as part of my lifestyle, then you know which one you want. So if you head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, that's the link that will let them know that you came through here and get you that free sample pack with your first purchase. Also on their website at Drink LMNT, they have a bunch of the details about the science and usage of electrolyte supplementation. Finally, if you'd like a little extra support with your training, I have a bunch of coaching options on my website at zachbitter.com from pre-made plans all the way up to one-on-one support with me, which you can scale up to frequent contact if interested. All right, that's enough. Let's head into the episode. And welcome, Dr. Paul Larson, onto the Human Performance Outliers podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm joined today with a guest, uh, Professor Paul Larson. Welcome to the show. Hey, Zach, thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I know I've been uh, I've been meaning to have you on. I think for some time now. I, I know um, a fellow friend and colleague of yours, Dan Plews, has been uh, uh, a popular guest of mine in the past. And in the world of endurance, I think your perspective on certain things is, is eye catching for guys like me who maybe follow a little bit of a different approach to nutrition when it comes to these longer efforts. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I think we, we probably share some, uh, some similar philosophies, Zach. So looks forward to, yeah, unpacking some of those. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me because like you, uh, you also have a lot of interest, I think in like, uh, the hit side of things too. And that's always an interesting topic, I think, to discuss, with my listeners and just for me as well to hear hear the takes and what you're seeing in the labs and things like that too with that style of training or that element of training I should say too because when I mean I think for most people they hear ultra marathon or hear you know running 100 miles or if we move into your world of triathlon a little more like I mean these are long efforts so it's kind of hard to intuitively wrap your mind around uh, speed work in the, in the sense of, of what we'd be doing with like hit type stuff. So I think it might be fun to chat about that a little bit too. 
Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. They they are almost like, you know, they're, they're two ends sort of the spectrum, what people initially sort of think. They think that the two kind of, you know, let's let's just call it low carb uh, kind of approach and and hit. They almost sort of don't think that they could potentially um, belong together. But in fact, when you learn how they do, it's um, it can be quite a potent um, recipe for success, I've found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I want to get into the details of that. And one thing I wanted to ask you about, because it's one thing I tend to see somewhat anecdotally in my own training and as well with some of my coaching clients too, is when we do get into kind of the low carb side of things for, for myself and my clients that do kind of take that route is I actually find like the long intervals that are kind of more, more in that moderate to moderate high intensity to be a little more problematic in the sense that the volume of which you can tolerate at that intensity is, is a fair bit higher, but it's also intense enough where you're going to push, you're going to push into your liver and muscle glycogen to a meaningful enough degree where I find with enough development, that's where it gets a little trickier about kind of how low carb one can go, uh, versus a focused training. That's maybe a little more polarized where your easy days are quite easy. And then you have like a hit workout or a short interval workout where the amount of volume you're able to actually tolerate for any one session, the limiters are going to be sooner than you're really meaningfully dipping into liver and muscle glycogen to the point where you're kind of floored for days on that. Is that what you're seeing in the lab and with your athletes as well? Or is there something that I'm missing there? I think, you know, I think you, you outlined the problem pretty well. I think the only thing that's really come to light for, for me, and I'm still trying to definitely um, crack this, but it's the individual kind of element and it relates to almost the the phenotype, we call it, of the individual where they might be more, they might have, um, you know, more fast twitch dominant athlete who can still perform the long stuff compared to the diesel engine that we like to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then there's the hybrid kind of in between there. But you do you do sort of see these different um, these different phenotypes across our sports or our, our, all of our endurance sports, right? Um, people tend to gravitate more to what they, what they're good at and what they like. So in the ultra world, it tends to be, uh, we tend to have more of the diesels, but if we're speaking broadly for the population, there's a, to me, there's really no, there's no, um, it's hard to kind of come up with a one size sort of fits all approach. And we really sort of need to see a little bit more about what, you know, what's the animal that's that's sitting in front of us. And um, I mean, this, it's kind of an, it's an exciting time because we're only really starting to get our, get our head, head around these sorts of things. At least that's with, with us at um, um, with Athletica, which is our, our uh, online AI um, training platform that we're building um, that, that kind of encompasses some of these things. We're, we're taking sort of a new approach on that. We're actually doing some phenotype sort of testing before we're per, um, we're going to be prescribing the program, so um, these these things are in you know this, this is forefront of mind right now. So I'm sure. sort of just blabbing on, but this is this is kind of what um, yeah what I'm sort of thinking. Um, I almost think also we need to kind of back up a bit and and almost consider a little bit of how much fuel we're actually talking about is going in to these sorts of efforts when we're talking about a high intensity interval training program, because we actually, we actually look at um, what we typically think we, we typically think if we're going to do a high intensity interval training sort of effort, 
that it's must be solely very, um, you know, carbohydrate dominated. You mentioned muscle glycogen, liver glycogen, that these are the predominant fuel sources. And yes, for all of us, we're going to be using more relative to, um, you know, our baseline levels. Um, what we find with people like yourself, Zach, or others who are very well-trained, they actually use a whole lot more fat for those efforts than, um, than the average person, right? When, and um, this was a finding that I made with, uh, with Dan Plews, um, Steven Seiler, and, and a few others. Uh, Ken Hedlack was the, was the lead author, but we found, um, we, we took in this, uh, what was for me a real breakthrough study and understanding we took um, basically a group of very well-trained individuals, more like your like yourself from a phenotype, Zach, and we compared those with Joe Schmo, um, sedentary individual, only three times a week uh, as a runner, um, and so ultra guys versus versus um, versus standards, uh, you know, just uh, weekend warrior types, and in these two groups, uh, I think it was about ten in each group, we just sound, saw profound. Uh, impact of the training status on how much fat they were burning. And that might be kind of, you know, sound obvious to some of your listeners, but it was, it, it was remarkable. Like in, this was during a high intensity interval training session. I think it was eight, eight by five minute efforts at 80% of, of max. So almost kind of like sub, we call them sort of VO2 max type intervals. I think that was the set. And um, the, the ultra runner guys we're burning like three times more fat during these efforts, Lo quite low RER actually, um, relative to the the sedentary individual, or not the sedentary, but the the weekend warrior types. The point of the matter is, is that when you are well trained, even high intensity interval training can be done at quite high levels of fat burning, and um, that's what you want, right? Like when, and that's what that's I guess really the art and the beauty of when you can actually combine the low carb versus uh, the high intensity interval training sort of sessions and get it so that your high intensity interval training sessions are done with so much more fat because it's so much, they're just done easy, right? There's no, no metabolic byproducts. Uh, there's no sympathetic response. And yeah, you're kind of, you're off to the races, so to speak. You're, you know, you're kicking goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that opens up the door or opens up the conversation of looking at the training a little more holistically in the sense that like, or maybe, maybe not holistically, but in a, in a wider lens of if this one workout is going to allow me to recover from quicker and get to another session similar to it sooner over the course of a plan, like, do I see benefits with that sort of a setup where you're not getting kind of the byproduct waste of like, you know, hyper carbohydrate usage where you're going to get that byproduct side of things, you know, maybe it gets you a couple percentages improved on any one given workout, but is that a sustainable model for the longevity of the training plan? And then I think that's where it gets into the individual level to some degree, but also, um, you know, where, where I guess where you're saying where we're at and trying to kind of figure some of these things out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, for me again, my bias, uh, but, uh, but the science supports it too. You, yeah, you, um, the more you can ramp your fat oxidation levels up, getting fat oxidation to contribute to your high intensity efforts, um, speed recovery, um, you know, use ketone, use ketones more, um, the, you know, it, it aids the immune system, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's just, yeah, the better, 
the better off you're going to be across the board from performance to recovery to to sleeping. So, um, but yeah, I, again, this is very individual for everyone and and how we go about that, you know, from the the diet standpoint, from the lifestyle standpoint. That to me, that almost kind of comes down a little bit more to self experimentation, assistance with coaching, listening to podcasts such as yours, uh, and these sorts of things. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's it's interesting when you get to the individual level because you start to kind of figure out where you fall amongst the the population level or what other people have tried, which is always an interesting piece to the puzzle for me. Um, when you're talking about just the increased fat oxidation rates in the more developed athletes uh, versus like the weekend warriors, how much of that, to your knowledge, is just training and lifestyle driven versus a, a dietary manipulation was those individuals that you were looking at, uh, did they control for diet at all with that? In yeah, no, it's an, it's an awesome question. And, and it's really important to, um, to mention is that that study and what we can link to it. I can, I can forward you the link, uh, thereafter, but all of those guys in those studies were, not you know they were they were just on your standard american american diet albeit they were from norway which where i think there's probably a little bit more of a you know maybe maybe a balanced diet that's kind of coming in relative to your your american diet if i can say um but but it's um yeah there's there was no diet control per se so in my experience, you can amp those numbers a lot more. The fat oxidation rates weren't even that amazing in the well-trained individuals. These these are guys. They were, I think they were training about you know twelve sessions a week. They had big VO two maxes. I think they were you know VO two max was around um, you know uh, I think it was above seventy on the on for the average. So they're they're good athletes, right? Like you know Dan Plew's kind of level, um, and probably you know probably yourself as well. And the other really important factor as well was the the strong relationship directly with VO2 max itself and fat oxidation. Higher VO2 max, higher fat oxidation. I mean, it's, it was like a one-to-one relationship. Um, whereas, you know, if you could burn lots of carb during those efforts, didn't matter. Like, you know, you're, that, that, that brought you down. Uh, you didn't almost kind of want that. But yeah, there was no diet control in those in those studies. These guys were solely this was solely through getting the getting that fat oxidation through training itself. Um, anecdotally, of course, we know we can we can amp that up. Guys like yourself, Dan mm-hmm. Blues, myself, we 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 know this when we coach and and uh, and we manipulate the the diet. We can we can amplify those those factors as well and keep them high, especially as we age. Yeah, it gets interesting because it's like we add into the context there, like something like the faster study where they did control for diet, uh, and then to some degree had kind of a similar like design uh, with the study itself. But I think one of the biggest, I guess, what ifs with the with the faster study that I have is um, we have these. You know, I think it was it was ten uh, low carbohydrate athletes, ten high carbohydrate athletes both groups were very well developed and multi-year, you know, tra- there was a, a training requirement that they had to have the, had for the prior two years or something like that. So it was like the assumption going in there was that these athletes had all pulled the training lever fully in terms of improving their fat oxidation rates. And we're going to now have a dietary variance to the point where we can maybe see the differences here. And 
at first glance, I think that study certainly showed, well, if you follow a high fat diet, your fat oxidation rates are going to be clearly higher than the cohort and the high carbohydrate. What I wish could have been done though, is like, could we have gotten those tests organized? And obviously this makes the experiment almost undoable and modern in the way that we do experiments for the most part, but like, it'd be, it'd be awesome to see like everyone's level on the opposite diet with enough time uh, to see like at the individual level, how much the diet impacting? Cause I think there's probably some messiness in that where like, can you have a moderate to high carb athlete who happens to just be uh, really good at fat oxidation. And despite their diet being moderate to high carbohydrate are still putting these really, really high fat oxidation numbers out there. And then the question is like, if you can do that without manipulating diet, why bother? I guess would be the pushback for someone like myself um, versus like, say like, I can't get my fat oxidation rates high enough on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, no matter how much training I do. So therefore I need to pull that lever. If I really want to find myself in that position where on race day, I'm burning a good enough ratio of fat to carbohydrates where I don't feel like I have to be mainlining, you know, carbohydrate all day long, just to, to maintain a, a relatively low or moderate effort. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess to your, to your critique on the study, I thought it was pretty, pretty awesome. It's one of my, one of my absolute favorite studies, uh, Jeff and his colleagues. And yeah, it was just, just kudos to them. I think it would be pretty tough to, um, to kind of, uh, do, a a swap over, you know what I yeah. mean? Like these, these are, <laughs> I think a lot of the, 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 um, the fat, uh, the fat group, the high fat group, they're pretty, you know, pretty happy. And, uh, they'd sort of seen the light with their approach that they took to that, you know, the, the well-balanced, uh, well-formulated low carbohydrate, uh, diet, I think to their, to their words. And then they, they were on it for, from six months to 18 months, I think from, from, uh, from, uh, from remembering that. And then some people on that, you know, on the, on the chronic high carb diet, like, again, you're just, due to behavior changes and stuff, they're just not mm -hmm. going to sort of change that. So it would yeah. be a pretty hard, pretty hard to do a crossover, I, I think on, on that one. Um, For sure. Yeah. And, and it's really where it comes down to the, to the coaching aspect. And some people, they, you know, they, they're, for whatever reason, they've they've tried things to their level to the to the high fat diet, um, and and they can't they can't get to the to the levels where they're seeing they're sort of seeing benefits. And there's a lot of, you know, I've I've coached a um, uh, a multi champion Ironman triathlete. Um, Plus and I wrote a wrote a blog post on this actually in our Plus and Prof um, uh, segment a long time ago. So it's still on there, but it's, this guy is, uh, you know, it, 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 we just couldn't get him to, um, to, to become fat adapted to a level where he was happy. Um, he was, you know, interestingly, uh, I think it's an important anecdote is the fact that he was a, a lacto ovo vegetarian and, and, hmm. and I just, I think there's things that are missing almost kind of, uh, I think there's, there's some, uh, carnivore aspects that are of benefit, um, you know, in you know, just from meat itself, I think there's like a lot of vitamins and minerals and, you know, other, other nutrients that are in there that are probably assisting us with, um, you know, with, with being able to fat adapt, um, from a performance and health standpoint that are maybe being missed when, when vegetarian, uh, athletes try, try this. That's my, my, my anecdotal, I guess studies will, will, will prove that right or wrong in the future. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting point. And I think it's one I think about oftentimes, especially as we move into an era of just more processed food types in general of just like, you know, it's like, 
it's one of those things, well, based on what we know, calorie for calorie, this shouldn't matter if we give you this processed item versus that it sort of ignores things like your ability to sustain it and, you know, everything else that kind of comes with it. But then there's that whole other like situation of like, we're sort of operating under the pretense of that. We know everything when we're introducing this versus what are the things that we, which I think is the most interesting part is what do we not know? And how is that going to like, what kind of unforeseen consequences are we going to, we going to create with that? So it's like, like you mentioned, like someone on a vegetarian diet, trying to make that work within a low carb ketogenic, is it them going low carb ketogenic? That's not working for them. Or is it like you said, the construction of said diet, that's just not working well for some reason we either don't or do or don't know about. Uh, yeah, hundred percent. Um, and I think it is actually that, I think there's a lot more going on. Um, you know, again, I'll go back to the study that we, we kicked off starting about, we're just measuring, um, using a metabolic cart. We're measuring fat oxidation, carbo carbohydrate oxidation in these two sort of different groups. And often these are like the key markers that are relating to performance. Yes, they're big rocks, but, um, you know, there's so many other small nuances, contextual factors that are going into everything else that makes up an athlete. And we've, we've highlighted a few of them, right? Like the micronutrient content of the well-formulated diet, whatever that sort of might be the, you know, there's other things, um, that are, that are happening there as well. The year, um, you know, how, how good is, do you have your circadian rhythm in, in check? How much sunlight are you getting your vitamin D levels? Are you, you know, an office worker that's working shifts or as well, right? Like think, are you a shift worker? There are so many things that are going into, um, the uh, a reason for why you might not be uh reaching sort of the health standpoint that you're that you're after or or the the coupled performance standpoint too so we we really need to to um this is really where you know good coaching and and taking a holistic approach to really understanding your athlete and the other different factors that are going into it really really are, are important yeah it's, it's so much we don't know zach to your point Mm -hmm. And I think there's also like, there's a sticking point when we're discussing things like this publicly too, of just like, what have we proven with science or what have we proven with research, like high quality research versus like, what are guys like yourself or like Dan Plews or anyone with a, with a, with a laboratory that's having athletes come in and test them? What are we seeing there that if you could piece together, uh, some, some evidence, like what does that show versus what we're able to kind of doing a more controlled setting all at once with a group of individuals. So I like, is, are you seeing like a lot of movement from, I guess this is maybe difficult because if someone's coming to you with this interest in the first place, there's maybe reason to believe that they were struggling to begin with. But I'd be curious if you have someone that comes into like a lab that is more moderate, high carb, and then gets curious about going low carb without any big red flags, but just curiosity wants them to kind of play around with it for their pursuits. Maybe they're doing something longer, like Ironman, full Ironman. And then they switch the diet well-trained. If you get enough of those individuals, like, are you seeing any patterns of like improved fat oxidation rates with a dietary shift that would ind indicate that they'd be able to like, you know, better perform with less fuel uh, versus just kind of having this, um, sort of like random scenario of like, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yeah. I mean, again, I think the, the, the first one that comes to mind tends to be the, uh, you know, is there the presence of a good quality meat source that's coming into that diet? Um, I really, you know, again, the more I kind of go down 
um, you know, become, become older and, and more experienced with these different cases. Um, it's, it's the, the quality of the food is the, is the key element. And there's just, unfortunately, there's a lot of poor quality food and elements that are, that are in that, that are, I think are sabotaging a lot of results that we're getting. And that's whether that's, you know, um, glyphosate issues that are, that are, um, you know, wrecking havoc on the the vegetables that we're that we're eating right and they're they're kicking out the glycine in our in our bodies that were that is such a critical amino acid for so many things that we're making so you know to um yeah again omitting yeah omitting the the meat source um having a processed meat source versus a you know a free range i think there's there's um a lot of people think it's a bit woo woo, but I think there's there's a there's a lot more there than than meets the eye, and I think that sabotages some of the results that we're getting in the the variability and the in the responses that we tend to see. People calling them fad diets versus you know actually something they're actually really paying attention to the nutrition nutritional values of these things that are getting in. So many times we classify just oh it's high carb or low carb. Well, there's yeah. there's so there's so many ways to do both diets as you know mm-hmm. as you know Zach. So let's you know, either, either diet can actually be, could be, could be excellent. Um, but is it, is it well formulated? Is it, you know, it, it, is it coming from the, from the ground, from mother earth, either way, that's, that's probably first and foremost, the most important thing. Um, and yeah, so, and, and seasonality is affecting it as well too, right? Like, so, you know, a, a diet that's taken um, from, you know, if you're living in Costa Rica, say, for example, and, and you're getting lots of sunshine on you, well, you know, having something that's a little bit more uh, sourced um, in in terms of the nutrients, like you know, pineapples and and these sorts of things that are that are sourced locally, um, that's going to be a whole lot better than if you're living in the UK and in the winter, in the middle of winter, and and taking that same that same pineapple, right? You're going to have completely different responses. Just just think about the context of of where you got that source and and what had to happen to that that um, that piece of uh, you know of of food to, to get you, to get, to get over there. A lot of people don't, a lot of people think it's the same, but I, you know, I, I disagree. I don't think it is. Yeah. It's really interesting too. Cause when you think about just how all that stuff impacts things like mood, which is going to impact your motivation, which we know, like when, when the rubber hits the road on race day, it's like your fat oxidation rates, your fueling sources and things like that. That's a piece to the puzzle, but it's like, at the end of the day, when you get to it's like, how motivated are you going to be to really get yourself into the pain cave at the end of that race versus any other day? Or how are, and then, then how are these things impacting that from sleep to your nutritional choices, to the seasons and what you're eating within those seasons and all that stuff. It's, it almost becomes a list that is like so detailed at a certain point, you can almost just take like the precautionary approach of like, well, I'm just going to eat you know, like as close to home as in season and as like, like organic whole food as I can, because then I'm going to like eliminate a lot of these what ifs that we haven't gotten around to thoroughly studying enough to know for sure or not. And, and then, and then hope for the best more or less. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we'll like, yeah. And for sure when you're, when it comes down to yeah, hitting that gear that you need at the end, so much of that will come down to, you know, the health of the organism. So how do you, how do you ensure that? Well, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's hitting those, ticking the boxes each and every day as best you can with all those factors you just mentioned. 
Yeah, it's interesting stuff. When when you're working with a client who you know is already doing a low carbohydrate or is very on board with trying it out, do you have a specific protocol that you typically do where you're like bringing them, you know, closer to a strict ketogenic diet for a while? Or is there like a spot where you're like, for someone as active as you, we're going to have like this range of carbohydrate targets and then kind of move from there? Or do you typically just do some tests and kind of let that guide that, that side of the conversation? Yeah. Um, I mean, if it's one of the key things, right. From a coaching standpoint, um, or a clinical standpoint, um, you know, never treat a stranger, right. So you really got to, you need to get to, to know that individual. That's mm-hmm. just a, that's a fundamental process, um, that yeah, a, a, any, any good coach out there will be taking, right. So you got to get to know that, that person. And, uh, in doing that, you are fine. Yeah. You know, getting more details, on what they are currently eating. Um, and that, that usually is a process that, uh, you know, quite, quite quickly you, you start to, uh, yeah, you, you see the red flags right away. Right. So I'm, I'm working with, a it's, it's pretty cool. I'm working with like an 18 time, uh, Ironman, Ironman female champion right now. And, uh, we're currently going through her, her, her diet. And it's amazing. She's one, you know, it's one of the most successful triathletes out there. But, you know, even, even she'll be, um, she be, she's been getting away with a lot of, um, a lot of stuff. And, and we know, you know, even from the faster study, we know we can get, we can reach lots of certain levels with, with, um, you know, things that aren't necessarily optimal. So that's actually, that's, that's really good news for all of us. The, the human body is sort of so resilient and, um, yeah, this, you know, we don't necessarily have to be super, super anal about these sorts of things. It's the, the genetics of that individual is probably first and foremost, the the key thing that's going to be eliciting that performance. But nevertheless, there's always room for improvements. And, and certainly as we age, um, there's less degree for error, especially if you want to keep going. I'm sure as you, you've probably learned yourself there, Zach, as you, mm-hmm. as you, as you age and continue to, to, um, to, to work in your profession. But um, yeah, so I think the, the other guideline, that was a question that you had, I really like Tim Noakes' Real Meal Revolution book. And he's got these three lists. He's got like a green list, an orange orange list, and a red list. And I use that as a, um, it's almost like from an in, inflammatory food sort of situation. Um, those are, that's a really nice guideline. So, and I also like to have sort of an 80-20 rule where, um, you know, I think, you, you know, we can be, if we're getting 80% from his green list um, of whole sort of whole foods, you're, you're pretty much sort of hitting the mark. And um, yeah, if 20% sort of falls in the orange and, you know, one or one or 2% hits the red from time to time, you're probably going to be doing enough to, to get the results sort of that you're after. And I like that. Um, I like that philosophy also from personally, because I, I think that we can get a little bit too anal about everything. And uh, I like to be, you know, I like to have a life too, and and uh, be a little bit more relaxed, and and a lot, you know, most athletes like that too. It, I think it brings some some sort of level of balance into life that that I I believe is sort of sort of important. Um, yeah, for going about things. So yeah, those are those are my that's my philosophy there. Yeah, no, it makes sense, and I think just like yeah, reasonably speaking, with the food environment we're into, expecting a hundred percent compliance to anything is going to be a losing effort ultimately, and you're just going to beat yourself up for like you know, the lack of perfection, so to speak. So I, I really like the, the 80, 80, 90% type of targets in terms of giving yourself a little breathing room to get about living and, you know, not necessarily being too much of a monk. <laughs> exactly. 
Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are my friends at LMNT Electrolytes. They have a wide range of electrolyte supplements and are currently offering listeners to this podcast a free sample pack with purchase. If you are interested in checking them out and letting them know that you came to them through here, you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO or to the show sponsor landing page, which is just zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Links to that are in the show notes as well. One other thing I wanted to ask you about along kind of the the lines of like how this works with uh, the nutritional side of things versus uh, the alternative is when it comes to race day fueling, is uh, the, the athletes you're working with, how are they ranging like their on course fueling strategy compared to what they would maybe be doing on a typical workout from a frequency and amount standpoint. I I mean, I've seen a lot of anecdotes around this in terms of just like what people claim they're doing in their diet and training versus what they're doing on race day and what they're getting away with and not getting away with. It's like, it is fascinating to look at just the exceptions as much as it is the norm. I know with, um, the ultra running position paper, they're recommending 50 to 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour for single day events. They're also reporting roughly a 60% gastrointestinal issue at that. So it's like of that six to 10, I think another, like half of that is more extreme versus just kind of like a minor gut ache that you can more or less power through. But to me, what that means is like either people aren't properly doing it, which is likely the case in some, some contexts, but then it's also like, there's a little bit of a risk reward thing here going on. Uh, if we're asking people to fuel a certain way for an entire day while running, and then also accepting a 50% gastrointestinal scenario, but then I'll hear stories of like the, I think the most popular one is Killian Jornet. He was like one of the best mountain ultra runners in the world who routinely barely cracks 20 grams per hour in his training sessions, even long ones. And some of his longer like efforts but then on race day, he's pushing up to like a hundred grams per hour. And I just think about that in practice for myself. It's like, if I was trying to get to a hundred grams per hour, I mean, it would be a digestive issue. I guarantee it. If I'm out there for hours and hours. And then like the only follow-up question I really have at that point is like, is, would there be a way I could train it in order to get up to that? Cause like my assumption is like, well, I know I couldn't on 20 grams because I've tried that before and I got nowhere near being able to get up to that, those type of frequencies on race day. So it's an interesting individual thing of like, well, what are people getting away with, which is others aren't, but I'm also curious just in general, is there like a template that you're using with your lower carb athletes in terms of their race day fueling strategy, or is that quite varied amongst the individuals too? Yeah, these are really good, good questions and ramblings. And I'm I'm right on page and probably dealing with the same sort of, um, you know, issues and uh, questions coming to me from my own athletes and trying to trying to optimize this one. Most athletes come to me with the problem of having uh, where they're almost um, they're having like gut issues and the gut issues are the thing that is really debilitating the performance. Mm-hmm. So they may be, they, from a younger age, the, the, this seems to be a, the younger phenotype, um, you know, say, let's just call it you know, 18 to 30 years of age. Generally, um, there's a great tolerance of carbohydrates and sugars. It seems like in my experience, as is just anecdotally speaking, that the gut seems to be really good at processing sugars and we can get up to these hundred, hundred, uh, plus, um, you know, grams of carbohydrate 
um, per, per hour. Um, and as we kind of, there, there seems to be this aging phenomena past around age 30. And again, this is going to be individual where the gut problems, um, you know, when they continue to at these higher rates, the there's a fermentation sort of processing issue and the the, the carb rate is so high that the gastrointestinal issues um they'll succumb to these where it's almost just debilitating due to the pain of the of the long event so um that's then usually the approach that i take in these individuals is to shift them to the lower carbohydrate ketogenic kind of kind of diet right lowish or at least a lower carbohydrate levels up their fat oxidation reduce the draw of the of the carbohydrate on the GI system and that inevitably um, you know eight times out of ten that's that's going to um, uh, create uh, an improve an improvement in performance in my in my experience that's of course a, a longer process getting the diet sort of right and then to your point well now we need to sort of start practicing the fueling requirements during the event and um, yeah, I don't believe that you can kind of take the Killian approach where you're doing 20 hour, 20 grams uh, per hour in, in practice and then ramping to a hundred in, in, on game day. I just don't think that's, you're going to run into the exact sort of same problems. My, I, I believe you need, we need to be having pieces of work, uh, which are kind of, you know, they're, you know, race specific preparation days where you're also um, you're bringing the nutritional strategy into play at the same time. Um, so it for me, in my experience, for a lower carbohydrate athlete, 50 grams an hour tends to be a bit of a sweet spot, most athletes, but it's, it is going to be individual, right? So mm -hmm. depending on how much sort of they can tolerate, probably also the substance that they've chosen that, that they, they, they feel sort of that works, whether it's a, you can approach versus the, um, Sorry, um, I've forgotten the the name of the new company that, that's out with that's making the the carbohydrate gels. But regardless, there should be you know whatever product you you want to choose, there should be a practice element in there, and you should be comfortable with uh, with saying this is not going to give me GI issues on the day. And um, and yeah, and the if you I've, in in my experience, if you've done that. Um, then you should be good to go, good to, good to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I think are you, are your athletes then targeting closer to 50 grams per hour in training when they're doing like their longer key sessions that are closer to a race day type performances? Context, uh, it, it would certainly depend on the, the phase of the program, right? So again, back to this, um, this, uh, Ironman champion that I'm, that I'm coaching right now, um, you know, it's kind of a cold keto phase. Dan calls it with his Endure IQ Q folks, where it's you know it's uh, really sort of getting the getting the junk out right to start. Really making sure that the the diet is bulletproof, the fat oxidation is up there, the building blocks of all the micronutrients are well and truly in tune in the individual, and then we're going to work towards um, you know um, working on. Um, ramping up those things and getting the getting the sort of the key sets and working on the fueling during um, once once sort of all that is that, that is in place and and fine tuning the the, the um, fine tuning.
tuning the grams per hour for those for those pieces but the there'll be actual race like you know race preparation sort of pieces right typically they fall on the weekend right you're going to do maybe in the triathlon context it would be like a brick session right you might do you know a three or four hour kind of ride with uh, you know key pieces that are in there at race pace followed by a run off the bike sort of thing and you know this the session itself might be between four and six hours and um but you know it's going to be with with the nutrition on board and um yeah you get a you get a really good sort of feel in that session might be a couple of those ones to get to sort of get it right before you actually um hit the race um a b race also you know a 70.3 or something like that is also a great way to kind of test things out before your a race yeah yeah the b races are great especially if you can hold back enough not to put yourself in a big enough hole where it impacts future training because it's like you just can't replicate everything that goes into like, what am I going to do the night before a race? What am I do the morning of the transitions, just the aid stations and everything that kind of comes into making a race day unique. Um, I really love using those in training when possible to kind of practice and stress test some of these things. Cause it's just going to count for so many more of the variables you see on race day. Um, yeah. hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, the, all those pieces are so important, right? Like you have like, nutrition leading up to it, hydration leading up to it, time you're waking up, all these, all these contextual factors. They've mm -hmm. all got to be considered and they can all shift the, uh, it, you know, if you're not careful, they can all shift the result that you got in your preparation. So mm -hmm. yeah, lots, so much to consider. Mm -hmm. Do you have clients you're working with that follow a, like a strict by the gram standpoint, ketogenic diet where they're keeping their intake that's like 50 grams or less, or do you typically have like a lifestyle extrapolation of that where like, you know, a lot of these triathletes are at certain points, probably burning two to three times the resting metabolic rate, and then therefore potentially needing to add a little more carbohydrate by the gram side of things, maybe not necessarily a percentage increase, but a gram increase. Uh, I would say I used to be a little bit more, you know, right anal for what mm -hmm. lack of a better term on the, on the, you know, the gram kind of base, but I would say I'm a little bit more laissez faire as you go. Um, by feel kind of um, now with with my athletes um, yeah and again just in yeah in conversations and you know diet records and these sorts of things but just you, you get a you get a sort of a good idea with your with is as long as communication is regular that's that's working for me so mm -hmm. yeah are you you know in, in the earlier days I would be getting out there with ketone meters yeah and you know getting you know making sure that there was a diet app that was on there that was calculating every gram of carbohydrate every calorie and and it was just yeah I don't, I don't think I got too much more when I just relaxed a little bit and mm -hmm. um, and just you know had conversations with the athlete and that's that's been that's been my journey over the last 10 years yeah and it makes sense I think like the more I've played around with this the more I've sort of started to appreciate the lifestyle factor versus, you know, one from the next, because it's like, yeah, if I was going to live a relatively sedentary lifestyle or even just, you know, more just standard going to the gym a few times a week or something like that, it's like getting down to 50 grams or less per day is probably a requirement to stay in any sort of nutritional ketosis or have like those blood ketone levels in a point where you can be confident your fat oxidation rates are also climbing up along with it. Uh, versus like the lifestyle that I have where like when I'm peak training, I might be putting in 20 hours worth of work per week, in which case, like, you know, there's some days where I could easily surpass 200 grams of carbohydrate and still test above 1.0 millimoles of blood ketones on, you know, most occasions. Like I might have like 
a dip below for a brief period of time after a big meal or something like that, but an overnight fast followed by a workout. And I'm like, you know, those, the ketone bodies are raging again after that. So like you kind of put metabolism on fast forward with this type of lifestyle to some degree. So I think sometimes like, yeah, there's a little bit of flexibility there versus what we're seeing kind of the average person need to do if they're looking for the therapeutic side of ketogenic diets. Yeah, hundred percent. The, uh, exercise training load really shifts the goalposts on, on your ketone response. So yeah, it needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Two, 200 can in fact be a, a low, a low value. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, or, or it can be a higher value. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it just totally depends on how much training you're doing. Yeah. I mean, when you just look at the, like the, the math, like if you're someone who's completely sedentary and burning 1600 calories a day, 200 grams is half your intake versus, that same mm-hmm. person, you know, doing like that four to six hour session you described now, all of a sudden that maybe only makes up 20% of their total intake for the day. And there's no way around burning some fat in that context. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it right. Yeah. Again, goes back to the study that we started with as well. Right. That's why, again, there's no diet control, but just the big, the, the big difference was the amount of training. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, keep, keep that all in mind folks. Like, you know, the, the training is probably the key thing that matters in, in all these sorts of things. And the, yeah, the diets maybe like a you know a twenty percent sort of shifter, but that matters. That matters to to a lot of us. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and I think it's always good to get the big the big rocks squared away first. And um, sometimes the smaller rocks are more fun and interesting. But that just means the sooner you get the big ones, like sleep and training protocol and that sort of stuff dialed in, the more you can kind of play around with the small stuff and see some see some things move yeah. potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I will say maybe, maybe, maybe 20% is too much. I'm, I'm almost talking about the, the 20, 20 to 30 year old that can get away with yeah. those kinds of things. I'm the, I'm the 50 year old now and I've got to pay attention to my diet. It really, it, it actually shifts way more to a big rock when I'm, when I'm paying attention to that. So um, yeah, yeah, context. I, I follow the philosophy of one of my friends, uh, Matt Vincent, who's been on the show. He was a former Highlands game champion and he said, yeah, when I was in my twenties, I could just abuse the machine and it would respond every time. It's like, now that I'm in my thirties, it's like, I got to do everything right. Or nothing works. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, no, no doubt. That is, that is so me. That's so me for sure. <laughs> it is what it is. Awesome. I, I do want to kind of shift a little bit here and look at the, some of the hit stuff uh, that you, sure. you mentioned and then the Athletica stuff that you got going on over there uh, with that. But with the hit, I find interesting. Um, I've had Professor Blatt on in the past, and I'm really intrigued with her approach to short intervals versus, I think, what we're maybe seeing in some of the research where a typical VO2 max workout, I think a lot of the like Siler research and studies would suggest that, like, say, a two to four minute interval session, one to one work rest ratio is going to be like sort of this optimal zone of enough time to get into that intensity long enough duration or long enough duration to get into it for a meaningful amount of time, short enough that you're not losing quality at the end and then rinse and repeat. And you end up with a larger training load over time um, versus say like the 30 second on 30 second off. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Cause I have this thought process and I think it's what professor Blot would argue is that that 30 seconds off is short enough that you sort of kind of sustain the you're not going to have as much of like maybe a heart rate dip between sessions as you would with like a two minute off or a three minute off or a four minute off like you're going to have in those two to four stretches so you get this like interesting dynamic where the damage isn't there but the the uh, the what you're trying to actually address is still remaining if i'm understanding it properly yeah i take a a different 
um, viewpoint on the 30 on 30 off versus we call it a longer interval. So with the hit science phenotypes, long intervals are kind of ranging from two to five minutes uh, at around your VO2 max uh, intensity. So the intensity that you get at the end of a a progressive exercise test, if you're familiar with one of those, whereas Mm -hmm. a short interval, you know, these are, these can be pieces where they're between 10 and 60 seconds of work and 10 and 60 seconds of rest done a minute, you know, a bunch of different ways. And typically we do a short interval a little bit higher than your VO2 max intensity uh, because they can be done that. Um, So those are sort of the two main um, levers that we can pull in the uh in, in the endurance athletes training sort of context now maybe the the important thing really when we compare short interval work to a long interval work the short interval work has that um uh i guess more a lot more frequent pauses and what happens in those pauses those frequent pauses is a resaturation of oxygen via a, a protein in the muscle called myoglobin we think we forget about this guy all the time but it's so important. So most people would be familiar with hemoglobin that sits in the blood, it's the oxygen carrying molecule. Well, likewise, we have a myoglobin, which is its equivalence in, I guess, factor in the muscle. Myoglobin resaturates really quickly when the muscle is, is static. Um, so, and this, we can use this little lever to um, that, the pause feature to allow our muscle to re-soak up that oxygen and it, and it winds up, um, I guess, keeping lactate at control. So now for the, um, we, you know, we spoke about the different phenotypes, the different animals, ultimately, that that approach us as uh, as athletes. Some of us has, have more fast twitch muscle fibers. Some of us have more slow. The slow twitch uh, athlete, we really call these guys the diesel engine. I would definitely, you know, I, I, you're probably a, di- a diesel engine with what, Certainly, you, what yeah. I know you can do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But there's that's not everyone, right? Like the, mm-hmm. there's a lot of a lot of us sort of um, you know have a little bit, a few more fast twitch or hybrids, um, and that's that's me. I put myself in that category. And uh, um, us twi- more twitchy guys, you know, I play a little bit of basketball and these sorts of things, and I enjoy my team sports. We tend to respond a little bit better to the to the short intervals, and that's because we can resaturate that. Uh, we can make these a little bit more aerobic um by by taking that pause between them where uh, whereas if we're doing long intervals we we can really sort of bin ourselves when we're when we're sort of doing a long interval it really taxes us and takes a lot out of us whereas a diesel like yourself you can do a long interval sort of session a vo2 max interval and oh yeah it, it was you know stung a little bit but no problem you can kind of move on to the next day no problem so figuring out sort of a little bit what you feel uh is is your um uh, propensity, what for doing work? Do you like to, you know, sort of the short and sharp stuff? Do you, do you have a little bit more kind of a hybrid, you know, team sport background where you enjoy some of those short and sharp, uh, sort of efforts and you, do you like exploding up hills? Um, these are, you know, these are indicators that you might be a little bit more twitchy. I mean, a lot of us, <laughs> we're, we're not going to take the time to go and get a muscle biopsy in the lab, right. To figure out what our, what our is, we, what we have, we need to sort of we got to kind of figure it out ourselves. Um, you know, we could do a little test, a sprint test, uh, or these sorts of things, but, but yeah, for the most part, like figuring out kind of what your, what your phenotype is can be a little bit helpful to finding out what type of interval work you might be more, uh, you might gravitate to more and respond better to. Um, and yeah, and there's, I guess the other, 
whether you're a, a diesel engine or a um a fast twitchy kind of guy um the 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 one uh, i guess coaching cue that we can all take away is that we should always leave a session like we we could have done one one or two more mm-hmm. i really believe that's 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 kind of a critical thing you never want to bin yourself in a hit session you never want to you don't want to take that um the no pain no gain philosophy that's another thing we really promoted hit science um because it, it just you run into injury and overtraining ultimately the key thing is consistency of training um and being able to back that session up tomorrow um, with with something else Mm-hmm. No, I think that's spot on. I know like with myself and the clients I work with, if we leave one or two reps on the table, we can get back out and do that session again. Like even, even sometimes on a block strategy of like the next day. And then like with that sort of a setup, you got to ask yourself how much extra volume are you spending at that goal intensity over the course of the time frame that you're targeting it versus, you know, leaving yourself rung dry at the end of that session and maybe not feeling great until the second half of the week where now it's like how much potential training did you did you leave on the table by eking out a couple extra reps that should have been left left out there 100 <laughs> did, did you say that your really short intervals are did you say 10 seconds on 60 seconds off they can be um for sure like those are in the team sport context they um they use like 10 on 20 off is a great session to do mm-hmm. you, you know you think oh 10 seconds work that doesn't sound like anything probably to your listeners it doesn't but you know um we just watched the world cup um that would be a classic session that my colleague martin bashite would um it hit science would promote in some of his very top uh, team sport players and yeah for the first 10 10 seconds of that you know those 10 on 10 offs isn't uh there's not too much there but as they're repeated um there's a, a larger draw on the cardiovascular system and there's an aerobic response that we see but the lactate level is um is kept really really low and it's actually if you keep repeating a 10 on 20 off you can actually re- you can reach vo2 max believe it or not um and you can reach it with a very low level of of blood lactate re- remarkably and that's again back due to that myoglobin um, so whilst we're not probably using this too much in the ultra world, in the team sport world, um, and, and others, it's a very effective means. And it can be like a, it could be like a midweek sort of, mm-hmm. um, hit session that they do and they can get a good aerobic response, you know, cardiovascular, cardiovascular, um, uh, stimulation, you know, ventricular remodeling and these sorts of things that are happening during the week um, in a short period of time. So they're not having to do kind of like a, a long sessions in the week because so many, so many times in the team sport context, they, you know, it's technical and skill-based parameters that are, that are the big rocks that they need to pay attention to. They still want to get their cardiovascular conditioning, but they need to do it in a very short sort of time course. And this is a good strategy that they can sort of use. So yeah, it's um yeah, it keeps keeps lactate at bay and can still if if it's repeated, you can you can get good cardiovascular stimulation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Is there any sort of advantage with that sort of structure from a like liver muscle glycogen standpoint cuz I know like uh to some degree I could see that scenario being less compromising to that overall. So like you like for example, you take someone's on a low carb ketogenic diet, a session like that maybe puts them in less of a compromised position in terms of the need to replenish post versus like those two, four, even five minute VO2 max, like standard kind of one-to-one work ratio uh, frameworks. Yeah, hundred percent. So again, that would be a 10 on 20 off 
repeated short interval work would be, we would classify that as a type a type one session. It's very aerobically driven. It has low levels of anaerobic and neuromuscular draw. If it has lower levels of anaerobic draw, then it's going to be drawing less on your carbohydrate stores. So indeed, to your point, lower levels of, of uh, muscle and liver glycogen would be, would be shed off in that, in that sort of environment. So yeah, it could, could be, you know, highly useful for that, that sort of context that you just described. Interesting. Is there, is there like a framework of target volumes you're trying to hit with those repetitions from like a starting point to where you like to see people get, or is that, um, or how individual does that get? I suppose it gets super individual, right? Like, so, <laughs> so who's doing so a thousand person, of these one person, in one second? <laughs> yeah. So like some, someone could just do one of those. And then at the elite level, they could do, you know, 50 of those, those mm-hmm. kind of efforts or more, more, right? Like it's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's high, highly, highly individual. So uh, once again, um, you know, never treat a stranger. For sure. Yeah. So you're definitely starting low with those. And then kind of, as you see the response, like scaling up towards their, their tolerance to it. Yep. Yep. Uh, absolutely. For sure. Yeah. And, and again, I would also be using it in, um, yeah, I mean, use it as an option if you probably more, more suited to the twitchy kind of athlete, uh, as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, there's some really like uh, Ben Rodstad's done some great studies too on the really looking across the board at, at cyclists, uh, the, but, but really showing that there's really, there's lots of great benefits to, you know, like short intervals compared to a long intervals. When we kind of looking at a broad population and we don't really know the, the phenotypes uh, that came into these studies, but you can imagine, you know, a study of, of 20 athletes that kind of come in there, there's going to be quite a few that are, that are hybrid sort of athletes in terms of their, their phenotype and their makeup. And when I say mm-hmm. phenotype, I'm talking about, you know, how much percentage of fast twitch you have versus, versus slow twitch diesel guys like yourself. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of us hybrids like, like me that are kind of in there and we tend to respond a little bit better to those, those short intervals. At least that's what, uh, what Ben's studies were, were kind of showing and, um, and, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's just, and, and I think it, it just comes down there. They're just a little bit, you're still getting a nice cardiovascular draw. You're still reaching VO2 max from a cardiovascular standpoint, but there seems, I, I, my guess is that it's less draw on the sympathetic nervous system. Right. And then, um, and it's just sort of a better, a better kind of recovery pro, um, profile for that consistency thing that we just spoke of, spoke about. I think you're, you're, it's, it's easier on the system. You're just not binning yourself. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a little bit less, no pain, no gain kind of thing. And you can, yeah, it's, it's a good, again, if you're just giving kind of like um, coaches out there, if you're just giving sort of a broad, um, you know, a look at your microcycle, I think it's a nice piece to have in your, um, in your diet for your microcycle for the week is to, is to have a short interval program in there for, for a lot, you know, I don't, I don't coach any ultra athletes, but I think, you know, I wouldn't mind having one in there, even if I, if I was having a, having a, having a go at probably coaching an ultra athlete, I would, I would probably have a a session in there where, where we would have a a short interval. I think we get a good response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's gotten increasingly interesting to me as the sports evolved. Cause I mean, the sports has grown a ton since I got into it. And I think in the early days, it was probably like you mentioned a selector for someone who's a more of a diesel engine uh even if it's just from an interest and capability standpoint versus what someone with faster twitch muscles can get away with doing outside of you know in the sport context 
But as the sport's grown, and then I think especially after the pandemic, I've just seen so many more like non-traditional runners decide, hey, I'm going to take on this challenge and do an ultra marathon for one reason or the other. So I've seen a lot more strength athletes come in as, you know, part of it was the gyms got closed and people went out and decided to do some runs and realized, hey, I actually kind of like the way this feels. I'm going to maybe now take another step in, you know, tune into David Goggins' Instagram account and <laughs> and, uh, and do an ultra marathon, even though I'm maybe not built like an ultra marathon runner. So I see a lot more people coming into the sport who would maybe fit that twitchy model that you described a little bit more so than it would in the past. And it's just interesting to think about like, well, as coaches, what are we doing to accommodate someone like that versus what we would maybe see like the more traditional diesel engine uh, distance runner coming in where in college, it was always like the easy way to identify it was like, who's on the cross country team. And then once track starts, which one of these guys become middle distance guys and which one of these guys are 10 K guys. <laughs> so like, that was the selection for that for the most part, but we don't have that sort of a sort of template in place for like the everyday adult runner anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no doubt. Um, but yeah, again, I know your sport has grown heaps and, uh, yeah, yeah. Through the pandemic and, and whatnot. And, and yeah, you will have, uh, as it continues to grow in numbers, you will see more of the hybrid profile phenotype coming through. And yeah, just always giving them long runs uh, is 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 not going to be it's not going to be suitable for every single athlete. That's for sure. So yeah, it's definitely something to consider for your coaches out there. Awesome. I uh, I want to make sure I don't take too much of your time, Paul, but I do want to ask you a little bit about Athletico before I let you go because I know like you've been pushing into some of this. Uh, if you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's kind of like an AI driven type of approach where it's collecting a lot of the data that we have available now with all the wearables and helping the coach and the athlete get maybe a little more precise with like what they're doing. Is that pretty accurate? Yep. Yeah, that's exactly it. So it started the project um, in 2015. So it's over, over eight years old, we've been building Athletica and it is for, for lack of a better term, it is your AI coach. And there's lots of competitors that are out there. We use the hit science, um, I guess, principles that are, that are in there with coupled with the, you know, the, an AI sort of flair and, and yeah, it's really, it's a, uh, it's a tool that's been built from, um, you know, sports scientists ultimately. And it, um, yeah, it, we try to answer your question, you know, what is, what's the best session sort of to, to do today and we're adding these these phenotype sort of makeups uh, aspects in there right now, sort of as we as we speak. Um, yeah, so it's at it, athletica.ai. Um, it's not you know coaches often when they first hear this they're they're probably almost all already switching off coming from my job. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's no, we have a coach version as well too. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and again, this comes from my own pain point where I just couldn't. I needed help with uh you know as a as a coach with to have sort of a sports scientist kind of keep watching over me. So we've got a, we've got a coach version um, as, as well. And, um, and, and yeah, so you can, you can, uh, the coaches can also have the, the programs being um, programmed by Athletica AI, and uh, they can also add in their own individual sessions so they can, they can make it even better. Um, and and yeah and it's uh you know we've got we actually do have ultra programs that are on there comrades uh in south africa is happening we've got comrades plans 50k ultras um yeah so it's and it, it's yeah it's a full so for for athletes if you can't afford a coach it's only 20 dollars um 20 dollars a month and there's good good adaptive ai plans in there it uses garmin and strava um in terms of the the stream so you just you have mm -hmm. your wearable in there um 
one of the other problems, right? Like you can have a plan on paper, but what actually gets done is a totally other thing. But yeah. so with wearables now, you can you can actually see what gets done and then uh, adapt that thing accordingly. So that's that's kind of the that's that's the the cool little recipe. And and same for the coach too. They can use the same sort of thing, right? Like again, what your athlete actually gets done might be completely different. So you can keep an eye on that athlete a lot better, and Athletica can keep an eye on that athlete for you. You can, you know, put in your own sessions, um, click and de- delete, drag them around, and it just uses the mathematical modeling, the Bannister's fitness and fatigue modeling, which is a classic sports science um, thing that's been used since the 70s to to optimize the the loading. Again, get that loading right so that it's not, uh, you know, the training is kind of is consistent throughout. And to to bring you into into theoretical top top uh, ready readiness to perform on on game day. Awesome. No, it sounds, sounds great. It's always interesting to, I mean, cycling has been ahead of running by a pretty large margin in terms of like what we can get out of like, you know, power meters and things like that. So I think like having these more wearables now that are getting a little bit better in terms of predicting running stuff and then having AI programs like what you have going over there, Athletica is just going to help us yeah, get a little less subjective maybe with some of the stuff we're doing as coaches or help the subjective side of it a little bit. And then um, free us up to potentially help out in areas that are going to be, you know, just as meaningful, but oftentimes maybe get left out because we get too into the, into the, to the, the analytic side of things where the AI program can do that, that side for you. And then use the, use the coaching stuff for other purposes, which I think is a pretty cool setup. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with you. Right. So this is, we try to do sort of the heavy lifting with respect to the to the programming and the monitoring and um, so much of the other stuff, uh, you know, let, let the humans do what the humans are, are good at. And that's, and that's the communications, these mm-hmm. things with the diet that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, I get our whole idea is that um, this, our, our technology allows coaches to scale their operation and uh, you know, take on more athletes as a result of it. Um, yeah. So they can service more athletes and, and do the thing they're good at. Awesome. Well, Paul, if there's anything else you want to chat about, we certainly can. Otherwise, I think I've, I've taken up a good chunk of your time and excited to get the message you've shared out to the listeners here. But um, before I let you go, uh, you got any spots you want us to know where they can find you, websites, social media channels, or anything like that? Yeah, I think I think um, just you can usually find me on the internet if you search my name, Paul Larson. Uh, you'll, you'll find my website, paullarson.com welcome to you know go to the contact thing and reach out to me there on the contact form and then of course my two key businesses are hitscience.com so hit is double i and uh athletica.ai so um you can you can find me at, at either of those uh those areas as well uh, on twitter i'm uh, paul paul b larson at, at paul b larson Perfect. Well, thanks a bunch for coming on. I'll hopefully can get you back on down the road and dive into some other topics or resurface some of these as things develop. Awesome, Zach. Thank you so much for having me on and all the best to you and your listeners. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and 
regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.